from ABC News Radio, KMET 1490 in Southern California. This is Biz Ninja Entrepreneur Radio with your host, Tyler Jorgensen. All right, I want to welcome everybody out to Biz Ninja Entrepreneur Radio here on ABC News, or if you're listening on podcast or wherever you are, appreciate you coming out. I'm your host, Tyler Jorgensen, and today we get to talk with Jeff Tuff, the co-author of this amazing new book called Detonate. Now, that's such a powerful title. Just, you know, welcome out to the show, first of all, Jeff. Thanks Thank for you. Being Thanks for having me. Yeah, so that's a powerful uh, title. Obviously, it really, you're saying that businesses in, in many cases right now need to really blow up some of their practices, right? Yeah, that's, that's the fundamental premise of, of the book, and I'm sure we'll get into it in more detail, but we chose the word detonate very purposely because you know it's easy to hear that it sounds like we may it sounds like we're talking about blowing everything up but actually we're talking about a controlled demolition that detonation of the things that are getting in the way of progress in companies and we've seen a lot of those things over time so as an entrepreneur i when i look at big companies i see that kind of uh how they get rusty and they get to where they can't move quickly they can't pivot they can't make changes what are the things that you're seeing in these big businesses today um, that's stopping them from being able to make those entrepreneurial changes that probably got them started in the first place? Sure, and, and I, I think you're exactly right. They, they, the things that they're doing that may be causing this rust to accumulate are exactly the right things that they've learned over time. And that's what makes the situation so perverse for many of them because the things that have made them successful in the past are actually creating the blinders from determining how to uh, deal with all the change that is happening in the world. So the way that, that um, we've observed companies getting stuck in this is, um, and let's just take a hypothetical company that's been around for say five, six, seven decades, had a tremendously successful business model. It's part of the Fortune 500. It's been returning um, re returns to its shareholders for a long time. And one of the reasons it's successful, almost by definition, is that it has captured the essence of that success into the way that we operate. So the, the kind of conventional wisdom of what we need to do to close the books at the end of a quarter, or what we do when a competitive, new competitor arrives on the scene, or when we think about setting price increases. And a lot of the time, that, um, that learning, that practice, in some cases, best practice, it's called, is passed around the company. New people come on board and they learn these things. Sometimes they're actually captured in physical playbooks. And it has been a, the recipe for their success because they've really honed their management model around some of the things that they've learned have been successful in the past. The way that most businesses have operated for a long time and people within businesses is come into a, a successful company and they expect to be there for a while. It may not be their entire career, but five, 10 years or so. And they recognize that the way to succeed is to actually follow those playbooks. And so we talk in the, in the book, we juxtapose what used to be a virtuous cycle with what we believe has become a vicious cycle. And the virtuous cycle was you come on board, you plan for a long career, you follow the playbooks, and when a marginal call comes along, you do the thing that the playbooks say. And most of the time it goes right, sometimes it goes wrong, but if it does go wrong, the people who are managing you, the, the, the executives of the company can't fault you for actually having followed the things that they themselves taught you and so for whether it's swept aside or some other conditions are considered for why it may not have worked, you are essentially given a pass and you continue on and your career grows and you follow the playbooks and everything goes great. And I'm obviously over-characterizing a little bit. Sure, that's okay. 
But what's happening now and what we've seen really accelerating over the course of the last two or three years is crazy stuff is coming out of nowhere uh, in terms of the way the companies operate. So when I say crazy stuff, like competitors are entering industries from completely unforeseen places. We suddenly have technology companies competing with in, in physical um, infrastructure type or, uh, industries like the taxi cab industry that, that use an obvious example. Right. And all of a sudden, the old rules are not really applying, but the, the, the perverse thing that's happening is that when the people who are following the playbook see that the stuff that they're doing doesn't work, instead of saying, huh, that's kind of weird, maybe we should try to do something differently, the natural human reaction is to just adhere ever more closely to the playbooks. And then more bad stuff happens and they stick to the playbooks and that's where this becomes a vicious cycle and you get trapped in doing things the way that things have always been done. So some technology companies have recognized this for the last you know, few years and, and they'll even say, oh man, this is happening. Let's create a separate division, like a skunk works division and allow them to operate off of a looser playbook, right? And so some of them have recognized that, but what's changing in the, just in the recent history and timeline of, of how fast business is evolving that's changing so that now all of a sudden businesses have to start being willing to fail again and make mistakes and allowing their people to make mistakes. Which, what are the major shifts that are happening? So the, the key thing that's changing is the rate of change itself. And so I think it's interesting that you named specifically technology companies who are setting up these skunk works or what have you, because the secret of setting up an edge business or spinning off an innovation team isn't just that that secret isn't open just to technology companies. It's open to anyone out there, and there's lots of different models for trying that. But what's underlying everything right now is an acceleration of change that's all built on the exponential curve that is being driven by computing power. So everyone knows at this point, I'm assuming about Moore's Law and the fact that computing power does actually sit on an exponential curve. But what's happened over the course of the last five years in particular is a, a set of call them exponential technologies, have taken off and started to dramatically impact the world all around us. So whether we're talking about AI or AR and VR or nanotechnology, I could keep on going. We've actually identified um, with some of our partners 18 different exponential trends. Hmm. They've suddenly changed everything about the way that companies not just can operate, but do operate. And so for digitally native companies who don't have, an, don't have an established business model, who have grown up in the world of exponential change and, and know it very well, it, it is intuitive that they need to operate in a certain way. And I argue actually still there's some digital native companies that may have come in the first or second waves of digital companies who probably could, could blow some things up um, to their benefit as well. But for companies that haven't grown up with that and have a, a business model that is, that is essentially built on what all of us have known as human beings, forever, which is the notion of linear change, where things shift in a somewhat predictable way and we can react in a way that actually is not, uh, sometimes it requires dramatic action, but it doesn't, it, it, it essentially has been a world in which we don't get blindsided every day. And today we are getting blindsided every single day, which is why we think it's so important, not just to set up the mechanisms to operate differently, like using skunk works or what have you, but to actually look internally and say, what are the things that are creating the blinders today that lead us to act um, and follow these playbooks and, and essentially adhere to company orthodoxy over time. And that's, that's really where uh, we start in the book in, in Detonate. So really over the past, just in the past, you know, generation of technology over the last five years, really in business and, and in this rapid feedback environment that we're now in, where we get data so much faster than before, 
all of a sudden the things that got companies to become successful are now the things that are almost hindering them, right? And that's what you're saying. Yeah. Some of their best practices. Give us an example of a best practice that's holding some of the big companies back. So um, th there is a common approach to developing innovations, Paul, and I'll, I'll, I'll use a term that's actually a, um, it, it's, it's one specific manifestation of it, but like Kleenex, it's been, it's been used to, to describe these entire systems, the StageGate system. For many, many years, for decades, StageGate was essentially, I can't remember when it was first launched onto the world, I think it was in the 70s, um, StageGate was the way that you managed innovation investments. And for, for any listeners that don't um, use StageGate or haven't heard of it before, the essential, the, the essence is a StageGate-driven innovation system starts with a bunch of ideas on the front end. So you fill the front end of the funnel of innovation with a bunch of ideas. Right. And then you go through multiple different stages of development that end with a gate review before you can move on to the next stage of development. And there's right. typically there's five or six stages of development in the early stage. In the early stages, you're um, going through defining what the what the opportunity is or what the product is. You then have a gate review to see if there's going to be some market uptake and you move on to the next stage, et cetera. The challenge though is that each of those gate reviews is always dominated by a discussion about financial metrics. And so you cannot, in most stage gate systems, you cannot pass from one stage to the next unless you can come to the table with some spreadsheets filled out, and it may be an ROI conversation, it may be a market size conversation, but you need to have some rational set of information to show to the gate reviewers to then move on to the next stage. Totally logical, makes sense in a world where the opportunities in front of us are knowable. And so we talk, we talk in the book about um, the nature of opportunity and, and how the nature of opportunity is shifting today. So I'll do a brief detour on that and then come back to, to stage gates. But so for many, many years, um, because the rate of change was linear, most of the markets that we wanted to serve were either, we, we were in them today or they were accessible in some way. We may, we may not have chosen to serve them. We may, our competitors may be doing a better job there, but we could go out into the market and get valid data. We could say to customers, do you like this product or do you like this product? How much would you pay if we launched it? What type of extensions would you like to this technology? And you could usually get pretty rational information back from customers because you were talking about something they understood. What's happened though over the course of the last five, 10 years on account of this exponential change is that customers themselves, whether we're talking about consumers or even business customers, can't tell you what they're gonna be looking for two years from now. There, even if, if you're talking about a, a, a business buyer and he or she is thinking about their home life and, and all the different technologies they have, whether it's Alexa or um, Uber or you pick your favorite technology right. that, that actually impact their lives, suddenly they're considering all of those technologies as they go through their own purchase patterns. And so if you, you use the old market research methods, for example, large-scale quant studies or focus groups, and you try to apply them in this unknown and in some cases unknowable domain, right. what the nature of opportunity is now, you're going to suddenly start getting bad data back into the system. And so the problem with StageGate in that world, which is a totally rational playbook if you're working in the known and knowable realm, is it's going to force you to do one of two things to pass the gate reviews. Either increasingly make up the data because you actually can't figure out what customers are really going to be looking for, or take something that was really potentially disruptive or transformational and pull it closer and closer and closer to your core business until it is knowable, in which case it doesn't create any sort of competitive advantage. 
And so that's an example of a playbook that has, that has worked for many years. It's very well-intentioned. It's very logical on the surface. That when you try to apply it in a world where the rate of change that we have today actually doesn't work. So the rate of change is impacted by so many factors, but I mean, customer, you know, brand loyalty is, is faster and faster to cycle. People are willing to make changes. Um, you know, employee loyalty is shifting as well, where people aren't necessarily going to start with a, a company and, and ride them from college to retirement. So all right. these changes are happening, but then you also have just the state of the rest of your competitors innovating much faster, right? And so these young scrappy companies sometimes are able to come in and not be not adhere to those older rules. But I really like how you talked about like you end up when when you're trying to use like StageGator, when you're trying to use yeah. the financial forecast and that and that kind of those number data driven things where you're using assumptions off things that are really hard to now make assume, right? Right. Then, you know, they, there's that old saying that numbers are like bikinis, right? They show a lot, but not everything. And so <laughs> the problem is now you're just making, you know, when you start making up more and more numbers, you have a less and less predictable outcome. And so what's the solution? I mean, we've identified now the problem, right? So yep. they're going to detonate StageGate, but I mean, they're going to go through and detonate all these things, but that just seems without a plan to replace it, it can just be, you know, haphazard. What's the solution? Absolutely. And, and as I said at the beginning, I want to be very clear that there is a place for the detonation. And so any, any scaled company today needs to continue to run its core business and to get good market data in the, in, the, um, in the markets they play in today in order to incrementally improve their business and deliver the immediate quarter. That's not the place where you want to go and blow up your risk management system as it, as it relates to innovation development. Where you should be focusing is on either further out opportunities or places that aren't necessarily your core business today, recognizing that you need to evolve your business model over time. And in those situations, the solution um, to opportunity development is not stage gate. It's actually moving as quickly as you possibly can and making, as we call, as we refer to it in the book, making minimally viable moves to test and learn, get things into the market as quickly as possible, and then course correct as necessary. Which is actually, I mean, that, that I think is a popular notion these days, being agile and, and uh, moving quickly. But it's a really, really difficult thing for any company that has in place a set of risk management procedures that won't let you get anything out the door until it meets a, meets a certain level of, um, of low risk, if you will. And, you know, it's interesting that you brought up the whole notion of numbers because the, we talk about financial forecasting, we talk about strategic planning, we talk about stage gate. All of those things have something in common, and it is an inherent belief in the numbers and a focus in the management systems to discussing the numbers. So that what ultimately ends up being the purpose of discussion is the numbers itself, or the, are the numbers itself, themselves, I suppose, sure. rather than what we're actually trying to achieve as a business. And so if we can peel things back to first principles and understand that the purpose of us sitting in meetings or the purpose of us showing up at work every day is not to get the numbers right. And it's not to go convince our colleagues that the spreadsheets that we've developed are the right spreadsheets, but instead it's to impact some behavior out in the world. And the closer we can get to understanding, are we being successful in impacting that, that behavior by actually going and doing something in the market? The more we can do that, the more likely we are to get rid of all the bad processes of getting in the way of change. And, and so that, that's an example of your processes becoming more important than the objectives, right? When Absolutely. we start, yeah, when we start rewarding the, the, the things that were supposed to simply get us to the outcome instead of figuring out how to get what the best path to the outcome is. 
that that's that's exactly right and it, it that we we talk a lot in the book about the notion of orthodoxy but you know just the the in, the ingrained belief about the way things need to um, need to happen and the things we do at work that it yeah, I suppose it's somewhat akin to the to the, the old adage of the frog boiling in water that you know you, you if you live in an environment where certain practices are accepted and expected day in day out you just naturally show up and you do certain things you naturally know when the staff meeting is going to be you naturally know what it takes to get past your bosses um, go no go decision you naturally understand what you need to do on the strategic planning calendar and you never pick your head up and ask is this actually something that should be challenged and some things should be challenged some, some things wouldn't and, and, and again I want to come back and say that we're not saying that everything we do every single day needs to be blown up what we are saying is we need to take a look at those things that are that actually don't have any good rational sense and aren't contributing to us actually advancing as a business and wonder whether or not we should flip those orthodoxies well, I think it's it's safe to say that it's worth challenging all assumptions, right? It's worth looking at all of the practices and say, are these leading? Are these helping us get to an outcome? Or are they actually hindering us getting? There? Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, this is fascinating because for me, this is almost the exact. So, like when I was going through my MBA, I uh, as as an entrepreneur, as someone who kind of does product launch and development, for me, it always came down to uh, it's great if I can ask a like big companies would have focus groups and they would ask people, yeah. hey, if we had this, would you buy it? Well, as someone who launches products, I like, I want to know if they'll actually buy it. So I want to get a product to market as fast as possible, get real dollar driven data as right. opposed to like theoretical data. And it sounds like if correct me if I'm wrong, that that's kind of what you're saying. You've got to get things to a point where you can get real feedback faster. I, that, that is totally right. And you know, there, there are all sorts of, we've known about self-reporting bias in market research forever. And right. um, actually one of the, um, I'm sure you noticed the cartoons in the book, we had a fantastically um, uh, capable and inventive guy by the name of Tom Fishburne try to bring to life a lot of these ideas uh, in a picture. And actually one of the pictures was someone filling out an online survey where it says, uh, what is your favorite snack food? And I think he's filled in raw kale, but he's sitting there eating a tub of ice cream. <laughs> And so sometimes, sometimes self-reporting bias is not that overt, where people are, are in some ways, you know, not not reporting the truth because of self-image or what have you. But there are all sorts of reasons why the way people will actually act does not make it through to the conscious when you're filling out a survey or sitting in uh, sitting in a focus group. And so that's why we believe you're absolutely right that you need to get out into the market as quickly as possible to watch the behavior. And when we say the market here. It's not always just an external market or an end market where you're looking at customer behavior. A lot of what we're talking about applies to managing organizations as well. If you want to make a management move, you don't want to sit back and kind of, and plan what the move is going to be and come up with all the logic and the rationale that you launch to everyone. You want to go and try small things to see if employees react, to see if people on the line, on your operating line, might do things in a different way um, in order to achieve the behavioral outcome that, that you're aiming for. So in order to do any of this, there has to be a major cultural shift around um, giving people a longer rope, right? Yeah. Allowing your team to be able to move a little bit more liberally. How do you think uh, these companies are going to be able to do that? I mean, you, you talk about the term of celebrating failure, which I'm a huge concept of. I, I've talked for a long time about the concept of failing up, right? It's great to make mistakes as long as yeah. you learn from them and, and it's moving you forward. How are big companies, companies at scale, and how can companies who are still like in process of that celebrate failure? Well, so 
you have to fail the right way. And I'm glad you said about, I, I'm glad you used the term failing up. And there's lots of different derivatives of that. But, you know, surprisingly, perhaps, as Steve and I, Steve, my co-author and I have been out in the world meeting with some of the biggest and most successful companies, what you don't hear is <clears throat> fail up or fail fast. That comes out sometimes. But literally that we should celebrate failure. Like it will be a mark of success for us. It'll be a mark that we are a great innovative firm if we can fail which to me is the most ridiculous concept you can imagine, especially for a company that has a responsibility to its shareholders to not fail and to actually drive economic returns. Right. But there is a, there is a version of failing, and I don't want to be too semantic here, but there's a version of failing where you're taking such a small step forward and testing and learning as you go along that it doesn't ultimately amount to failure. It amounts to um, tiny little increments of learning all along the way. And so this, that's what this notion of minimally viable moves are. If you can identify the smallest step you can take to test something, to try to get a real understanding for whether or not you're making the right move and bring that back in. Sometimes it's going to be the right move and you can progress. Sometimes it's going to be the wrong move, but it's not, you're not expect, exposing yourself to such massive financial or reputational or whatever risk you're so concerned about that it turns into a failure. It turns into a, um, a, an incrementally shifting path to success. And that's the mindset that we think every company needs to get into. And, and to, so to go back to your original question, how do you do this? How do you shift the culture? We don't think it's through broad proclamation. We don't think it's um, that a CEO should say we need to blow everything up. What we do believe is that as a starting place, they need to ask different questions. And so there's a, there's a part of the book we talk about questions we love and questions we hate. And the questions we hate are the ones that we hear all the time. Like, what is the ROI of this? And, you know, when, when will, be, will we be making profit from this? And how much money can we make from this? Instead of the questions we love, which are ones like, how can we move faster? How can we learn something quickly? How can we get to market to test this assumption? And I, I believe, and I believe, I think Steve believes that if we can just get people to start asking the, the different questions, we'll start to shift the culture immediately. And then there's obviously more structured things you can do as well, but that's one of the best ones. I really like kind of putting a framework or a, you know, a boundary around failure and saying, okay, micro failures are allowed, right? We want you to get rapid feedback. I love that concept of minimum, minimally viable moves. I think that's brilliant because what it does is says you're allowed to fail within iterations, but you shouldn't be moving so boldly, so brashly that you're now increasing risk right and you're actually and being you know irresponsible and so i think that's brilliant like we're and that requires just the ability to move quickly within the company um and recognizing that small failures like you're kind of saying are actually just rapid feedback and and in moving quicker and so i think that's fantastic um what are some of the give me another example maybe a real life example of a company who's been able to detonate successfully so um, what I will say is that we haven't seen broad scale detonation at a, at a scaled company yet. We've seen some early instances of um, great examples of people making, taking steps that you wouldn't necessarily have assumed. And we believe that they're good leading indicators of success, but I'd be hard pressed to name, I could probably easily give you the names of companies that didn't detonate when they should have and went out of business, but I'd be hard pressed to say, here's a, here's a company that's actually gone through the whole thing and come out on the other side the right way. But I think it's really interesting if we just look around at some of what's happening in the world today in industries that have 
seem to have pretty steady business models for a long time and um, who are starting to make moves that you never would have expected. So who would have guessed that two of the biggest American car makers would have announced in the last, in the last month that they were essentially getting out of building cars in the U.S.? That's an interesting move. It's not something that, that it comes by the playbooks. And, you know, you could argue that it's a competitive shift based on what's happening in the market, but it is actually a bold decision to go and do things differently and question the way that those companies have made their money over time. Um, I think we've started to see uh, some interesting uh, executives moves in some places where we're seeing a lot of, especially at the CEO level, uh, even even as recently as the last 24 hours, we had a major, within the retail world, we had a CEO move from one type of retail setting to another with the expectation that he and this um, situation is going to be able to really look at things fresh and differently and bring different practices to that company that, that is probably in need of it right now. I think, um, I think retail is definitely probably like one of the easiest ones to look at from a simply, simply because we see a massive shift happening. So I almost yeah. think that these big retail companies are given a little bit more of a pass to detonate, like to make major changes because it's almost a sinking ship, right? So it's like, okay, yeah. we recognize as shareholders of JCPenney or of Toys R Us that in order for you to make, to, to survive, you're going to have to make major changes. Um, and it's funny, you know, again, from as an, as an entrepreneur like a, that, that is seeing the ability and seeing ideas at a different way than some of the big companies, man, I'm like, there are so many great ideas for ways to save some of these retailers if they're just willing to pivot and make, make changes fast right. Yeah, you know, I'd say I applaud anyone that's willing to go and challenge their, their practices of today. I would say it's probably easier to detonate when it feels like you've got a burning platform or on a sinking ship, yep. whatever term you want to use, totally. than it is if you're trying to shake something up that looks like a stable business model. And I, right. I, without, without sounding too hyperbolic, I really do believe that almost any company out there needs to be ready to be disrupted in some form or another. And I applaud those the most who seem to be the most stable and they go and challenge things. So there was an interesting article I read um, in the last, I think it was in the last month or so about CEO of Edible Arrangements who um, came out publicly and said that he believes that they need to essentially burn down their business model and restart every five years, which, you know, Edible Arrangements has, been, has, has had a very successful business model. It'd be very easy to rest on their laurels and say, let's try, try to adjust and tweak and um, stick with it as much as we can, but that's that's an example of a company that um, really is setting out and saying we don't think that our that the shelf life of our business model is more than five years, so we're going to proactively go and challenge it whenever we can. Yeah, and I th I think you're absolutely right. It's a lot harder. I would applaud a company who their assumptions are currently being proven right or or proven valid to challenge them. Right, it's a lot easier to make challenges when things are looking bad. So. Uh, here's kind of where we get back to the personal side of this. Like, you know, you've wrote, you've written this book, right? Obviously this is something that you, you find some passion in. What, uh, what is it like, what, how does this connect back to Jeff Tuff and what have you personally learned while, from putting this together? Like even just into your, your life? Well, so it's, it's been an interesting, um, I would say personal ex experience in my own work life, as I've looked around at, at not, not just at where I am today, but at the, at the places I've worked in the past, to see how my life has unfolded because I have followed the playbooks and in the places where I haven't followed the playbooks, um, where things have gone well. And so um, 
I'd like to say that I've lived the detonate mindset forever. I'd be lying to you if I had. I have fallen prey to orthodoxy as much as anyone. But I, I do have, you know, this is easy for me to say, given the advice that we're trying to put out to the rest of the world. But I do find myself time and again coming back to the four detonate principles that we lay out in the book as solutions for anyone. And if, if nothing else comes from this effort, apart from um, suddenly having a, a new appreciation for just how much effort it takes to get a book out into the world that people enjoy to read, I will carry around those, those four principles. So I will try to always bring a beginner's mind to everything that I do. And, you know, there's, that's a, that's, I think it's, I don't think it is on the cover of the book as being one of the core things is, you know, we talk about needing to think differently and to act differently in the book. So on the thinking side, um, part of it is bringing a beginner's mind. The second is always focus on the behavior you're trying to drive with anything you do. At the end of the day, every, I still believe that the most basic economic unit of analysis for any company, no matter how digitized the world gets, is still human behavior. Someone somewhere needs to shift what they're doing in order for us to, to progress. And so I find myself now, even, even in serving my clients, actually taking a behavioral lens to not just how can I, how can I convince these clients that what I'm saying is, is true about what's happening with, to them strategically, but how can I get that individual across the table to go and do things, do things differently? Right, and then on the on the act side of equation, um, you know, that there are the two things that we always talk about are making those minimally viable moves, which I'd like to say that I've I've been able to figure out myself yet, but that's a that's a work in progress, um, and to essentially embrace in, in, impermanence and recognize that things do not last forever. Careers in a certain role don't last forever. Teams don't last forever. Business models don't last forever. And that I think is the that that one of any of them is the one that um, I'm I'm carrying around. Uh, what's the right way of saying this? M most heavily with optimism. You know, I'm I come from an industry where there has been some degree of permanence for a long time, and we recognize that we're being challenged day in day out from a whole variety of different uh, quarters. But if we can just recognize that. And if we can, and if we can understand that we need to, to follow all the rest of these pieces of advice that we're bringing out in Detonate, I actually am very hopeful for not just my industry, but for all the industries that have been so successful for so many decades. Very cool. Yeah, I love that, and I hope um, people take away those four points and and go and get your book, uh, which they can get at detonatethebook.com. Uh, you can also find it at uh, all the major retailers, Amazon, and all those wonderful places where books are sold. So Jeff, to me, business, entrepreneurship, life, writing a book, all of that stuff leads us to living the life that we want. And so I ask this question all the time, what's one major item on your personal bucket list you're going to accomplish in the next 12 months? Well, this, this is going to sound completely ridiculous, but I'm going to tell you the truth, okay? Sure. So I, instead of make up some, some formal, um, you know, wildly insightful uh, strategic <laughs> insight, I'm going to go see two of my favorite bands in the world with um, my four kids and my wife at Red Rocks. I, I, uh, without going too far into the history, I, I have been touring with bands, seeing bands, not playing in bands, but touring with bands for a long time. I've never been to Red Rocks, and that's on my bucket list. It has been for a while, and the fact that I get to see two of my favorite bands there is something pretty exciting. So. All right, you got to say the bands. All right. Uh, well, so my, my favorite live band right now is the Drive-By Truckers. Um, and then they're playing with Tadeshi Trucks Band on a, I think they're calling it the Wheels of Soul Tour this summer. And I think they're two of the best live acts out there right now. Very and cool. Luckily, all my kids love the music too. So it should be a good That's time. That's awesome. 
That's great. Hey, I appreciate you being honest because that's what it's all about is being candid about what we're really, what the right. desired outcomes are of, of this life and journey we're all on. Really appreciate you coming out. Encourage everyone to go check out Detonate the book uh, and read it and learn from it and apply it into your life and business. It's your turn to go out and do something. Thank you for listening to Biz Ninja Entrepreneur Radio with Tyler Jorgensen. Please make sure to subscribe so you're first to hear new interviews and episodes. If you found this podcast to be valuable, please share it with a friend. Don't forget to visit our online dojo at bizninja.com to claim your reward for listening to the show.